Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. I'm joined today by David Sheff. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Clean, Overcoming Addiction and Ending America's Greatest Tragedy, and the memoir, Beautiful Boy, A Father's Journey Through His Son's Addiction. In 2009, Mr. Sheff was included in the Time Magazine 100, Top 100. That's the world's most influential people. I'm delighted to have you with us. So, uh, David, welcome. Uh, Greg, thank you so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here talking to you. Okay. I want to dig right into this. Hundreds of thousands of parents silently suffer through a daily existence of uh, doing whatever it takes to keep their sons or daughters alive who are struggling with substance use disorder. And, and you know, maybe it's due to embarrassment, social shame or social stigma, uh, status in the community and putting that in jeopardy. Maybe it's their business reputation. Whatever it is, most remain silent. But you decided to tell your story. Why is that? Well, you just described a big part of the problem. Um, I guess we know this. It's not just about addiction, substance use disorder, mental illnesses, anything we're suffering from. Um, as long as there's stigma and shame and we don't, um, you know, we don't talk about it, it's not going to get better. Uh, so what happened was uh, we sort of endured, you know, 10 years of, of struggling with my son. Um, and it was a nightmarish uh, ordeal. Uh, anybody who's, through, who's been through it understands what it's like to have a child who disappears sometime. You don't know where they are. Um, finally, you know, they do, dis- they do appear and they're in, you know, a terrible situation. My son, Nick, um, relapsed and, and a dozen times, uh, and every time he was in worse situations. So I guess what happened is Nick was finally doing better for a while. And I realized that I wanted other parents to know, um, you know, we all think this isn't something that can happen to us. Uh, I wanted parents to know, yes, it can, it can happen to any of us. And I also wanted to know, I wanted to open a dialogue. So it was not anymore a secret. We were able to, we're able to have this conversation to figure out, first of all, to share our stories, know we're not alone, and then hopefully help each other. So, and you were inspired along the way to do that. It really inspired you in a, in a big way by a number of people. Um, but I, I think the one that you mentioned in one of your books was uh, Thomas Lynch. Yeah, his book, I don't know. Have you read it? It's um, Actually, I have not had the pleasure of reading it. Oh, my God, grab it, because it's, it's a book of his essays, and one of them is, he generally doesn't write really personal essays, but he writes, he, he himself is an alcoholic, he describes that a lot um, in recovery, and um, you know, then it turned out that his heart broke when he learned that his son was as well, and he described the experience of a parent in the most uh, gut-wrenching way, and he described uh, sort of the journey of a parent who really wants to do everything they can, we can, to save our kids' lives, but also realize that we're limited. There's only so much we could do. And so he talked about how it just broke his heart 
to watch his son on the spiral without being able to help. Uh, and it did. It was one of the first things that I read that made me realize that I was not alone. I'll have to read that. Something that's now more widely talked about in prevention is the substance use disorder risk factors, things such as genetic predisposition, parental drug or alcohol abuse, or even uh, adverse childhood experiences such as divorce. How do you think those came into play with your son and his development of the disease? Uh, yeah, with the research I did, I learned that some people are much more likely to use drugs, use them excessively, and then become addicted. And you, you listed some of what are these risk factors, and they include mental illness, they include the age of first use, you know, kids who start younger are more likely to become addicted, uh, family history, stresses, uh, besides mental illness, there's other neurological problems uh, people deal with, uh, learning disorders, you know, um, and, and that's because people, you know, get frustrated um, and turn to drugs. And sometimes uh, people are always trying to feel better. They're trying to fill up a hole inside them. And that's what it's all about. Um, you know, initially drug use can start with experiment, curiosity, you know, part of the peer pressure, you know, I'm with my friends, they're getting high. Uh, but those who have problems with drugs are usually trying to deal with another problem that they have. Um, it turned out that my son, Nick, had them in spades, these risk factors. And they included, you know, when he was young, his mom and I had a very bitter divorce. So he was put under enormous trauma. That's a big risk factor. Only later did we realize that he also had uh, a, a couple psychiatric, neural, uh, psychiatric disorders, and they include bipolar disorder and depression and anxiety disorder in a very, very serious way. I mean, at the extreme. And because they had never been diagnosed, they'd never been treated. So for most of that 10 years, at least part, if not most, of Nick's drug use was attempting to feel better, to try to treat himself, to try to fix himself. And of course, the truth is, you know, these drugs just made it worse and worse and worse. Yeah. So as a parent, when you recognize that a number of risk factors are coming into play, are there things you can do to kind of offset that with prevention factors? Yeah. Well, that's the most important thing for parents to know and others, you know, school teachers, um, nurses, doctors, um, counselors, it doesn't help in most cases to lecture our kids. Don't do drugs. These are bad for you. Uh, we know that certain kids are much more pre you know, are, much, are much more likely to be, have trouble. So yeah, we know that if a person is, has these risk factors, then we have to intervene as early as we can and in every way as we can to try to mitigate those risk factors. And the way we do that, for example, if someone has experienced trauma, whether it's trauma you know, for a soldier who's come back from war or a child who grew up in a really house in a household with a lot of dysfunction and fighting and anger. And of course, if there's abuse, it goes off the, the charts. And um, those kids need just intensive therapy. And that can make the difference in the world, all the difference in the world, because first of all, they're acknowledged that they have this, that they're suffering. That's huge. And then there are therapies that work. Um, same thing. Nick had bipolar disorder and depression. If he had seen a psychiatrist when he was young who had diagnosed him with those diseases and put him on medications and put him in therapy, you know, who knows? We don't know for sure. Maybe it would have been the same. Maybe it would have been just as bad. But he thinks, and I think, that um, he would have been protected in many ways because if he's feeling depression, you know, if somebody's feeling depressed to the point that they're rolled up in a ball in the corner and they feel like there's no hope, you know, 
drugs is, feels like a solution sometimes. Uh, if you have bipolar disorder and your anxiety is to the point that you feel like you're crawling out of your skin, you can't be in a social situation. You're just feeling like you are, Nick described, feeling like a Martian you know, in this world, just that you didn't fit in. Um, if instead of you know, drugs uh, and alcohol can feel like they're going to fix that, of course they don't, but now Nick is on medications for those psychological problems, working very closely with a psychiatrist, and he hasn't relapsed since he got on those. So, so we can fix those. We, we, can, we can't fix them. We can treat them, and we can continue to treat them because those things worsen. Um, kids who are in dangerous situations, uh, living in poverty, living around a lot of drug use, living with abuse, again, they're in a very high-risk group. What they need is intervention, social services, ways that we can make their lives easier and take away the stress from their lives. The more we do that, and research supports this, the more we do that, the less likely they're going to have addiction, the more, more likely they're, less likely their addictions are going to escalate to the point that they're life-threatening. I'm going to ask kind of a difficult question that you may not be able to answer, but I'm going to give it a shot anyhow. Unlike yeah. many parents with children addicted to drugs, you could actually relate to Nick's drug of choice through personal experience. Did that help or hinder you as a parent in your efforts to support Nick in his recovery? So it is a good question. And I guess I guess I don't really know the answer. All I can tell you is when I was in college, yeah, I was with a friend and he pulled out something and said, yeah, let's do some speed. And at that point in my life, you know, I wasn't discerning. I, w I did it. I had a terrible experience. Um, the difference between me and my friend, I now know looking back, is that I do not have the propensity for addiction, but he did because once he did that methamphetamine, basically we sort of lost him. Um, he went off for two weeks. I didn't see him. He came back. He spent the rest of his life fighting his addiction. Um, I guess the only way that maybe it did enlighten me a little bit is I did understand the dramatic effect on a person, you know, how I felt. I felt crazy for 24 hours. Um, didn't want to repeat it, but I also understand the temptation or the impulse to try to keep going, to try to keep that high going, because Nick describes his reaction as very different, I think much more like my college roommate, which was when he felt it, he said that he felt better than he'd ever felt in his life. And he wanted to feel that again, especially because he was coping with so much anxiety and depression and all that. So he found something that made him feel better for a little while. And then he just trying to chase that high. He wanted to feel it again, and he never could. But that didn't stop him from trying. So in some ways, your personal life's experience made it more difficult for you to relate to Nick and his experience with that drug. It did, it did, it did although I did have that experience with my roommate. So I did see the fact that it could yeah. influence some people differently. Uh, and by the way, you know, my roommate never stayed in recovery. And I think he was about 40 when he ended up um, dying. You know, he overdosed and died. So I was not – my experience did one thing, which was I did not minimize it. I did minimize some of his drug use earlier. Oh, he's just smoking pot. He's just drinking some. You know, that's what kids do. But when I knew he was using crystal meth, I knew we were in trouble. Yeah. So, David, can you uh, talk about the guilt and shame a parent feels when they discover their child has become an addict? Yeah. Um, boy, did I feel that. I felt so guilty. I felt so ashamed. I mean, both of them are different. Uh, the guilt part, I felt that in some ways I must have contributed to the fact that he's addicted. And it's not just whether or not I had genetics, uh, genetical, a genetic predisposition, you know, cause I didn't have addicts in my family. Um, but it was more about that. I didn't protect him, uh, that I didn't watch close enough, that I didn't get him help soon enough. Uh, so I felt incredibly guilty about that. The shame was different. 
um, because we live in a culture that judges people who become addicted and we think that it's a choice, we think that people who become addicted are just selfish and all they want to do is get high and they don't care if it affects someone else, um, we hide this. And we hide it because we are ashamed. And I just hid it. I didn't tell people around me because I wanted to protect Nick. And I didn't want them to protect, and I wanted to protect me. You know, what would they think of me if my, my son was an, an addict? So I was, I did experience that shame. And it's really unfortunate and harmful that people do because, you know, if our child had any other disease, we would go out and get help and we wouldn't feel shame. We would just feel heartbroken and we would do everything we could to get them the best treatment that we could. Uh, addiction and some mental illnesses are the exceptions. So oftentimes the family becomes the ones that are advocating for them and helping them get into treatment and everything, and they're looking for treatment. And meanwhile, you've got this whole treatment world, a billion, multi-billion dollar I, industry out there that, that is full of people. And, and you go online or, or you know, you, you, you're looking for just the quickest and the fastest. You want to get this thing fixed and anything that looks good. Boy, I tell you what, if the, these people can fog a mirror, you're going to buy what they're saying and you're going to go for it. And you, you, you touch so on that a little bit. In, in yeah, your I think it's so it's so true. And I'll tell you, um, you know, parents are so desperate that we'll do anything. And if we try one thing, and if it doesn't work, we'll try the next thing. And if someone comes along and tell along and tells us, you know, we can fix your kid. You know, unless we've been educated, we might make big big mistakes and pay a lot of money to people who really don't know what they're doing. Um, and part of the reason is that this is an unregulated field. I mean, if, if again, I keep going back to compare this with if you have somebody you love has any other disease, you know, if, if, if a child had whatever it would be, you know, if they were, if they went to their physician and the doctor said, you know, it looks like they've got some problem with their, I don't know, maybe signs of leukemia. I mean, something really serious, you know what to do. They refer you to a specialist here. You know, you don't know some programs will promise that, you know, you Send us your kid and we'll return them to you in seven days and they'll be drug free. It doesn't work. <laughs> right. um, uh, you know, a lot of places offer, you know, 12 step based recovery, which is fine for some people, but isn't enough treatment for many people who become seriously addicted. In many programs, a person goes into treatment and they never, ever see a trained doctor, a never trained psychologist or psychiatrist when they have to. It's That's criminal. David, Pardon did you me? say most? You said most. In most programs, did you say? I've just read some research that showed that up to 90%, 90% of treatment programs offer substandard treatment. They don't offer what we know. They don't offer evidence-based care, which means that almost everybody ends up in the clutches of people who, they're all well-meaning. Clutches makes it sound like they're sort of these nefarious villains. They're, they're not. They really want to help. But they're, they just don't know how. They didn't go to school to study what happens in the brain when somebody becomes addicted, and they didn't go to school to understand, yes, we can treat this. You know, give them, give somebody who's on opioids a medication, something like Suboxone, um, and you increase the likelihood that they will stay sober by three times. It's very likely that they will relapse without it. And yet, many of these programs that exist will tell you, you know, no, we, we do not believe, you don't, you don't treat someone who's an addict with drugs, um, and they're just wrong. You know, these aren't drugs to get high. These are, drug, these are medications, just like you would treat somebody who had a heart problem or somebody who had diabetes. Um, so, so, you know, we really need to educate ourselves as consumers, as parents, as husbands, wives, brothers, parents, you know, whoever it is, 
uh, people who are suffering themselves, what works, what's been shown to work, and what doesn't, and just make the most educated decisions that we can. So there seems to be somewhat of a chasm in our country between those that believe abstinence-based treatment is the only way to recovery and the medication-assisted treatment programs. You address that a little bit in clean. Can you can you speak to that issue? Yeah, the research all is incontrovertible. Uh, abstinence-based programs work for some people, but it's a minority of people. Uh, it's why so many people go through treatment and relapse again. It's the science-based approaches, evidence-based treatments that have been shown to work much better, much, much, much better. So as I said, you know, if you put a patient on medications and they're most likely, much more likely to stay clean, then of course that's what we want. Now, I've been in situations where I've met people who are in treatment, but they're in abstinence-based programs and they go out and they've gotten high on marijuana and they were caught and they were kicked out. Now the question there is, uh, is that even conscionable? I mean, you wouldn't it be better to have somebody smoking pot sometimes than shooting heroin? Once you've got somebody off heroin, then you can say, okay, you're still using drugs. You're still using spot. Let's talk about why you're using marijuana. Let's see if we can get cut that down. You know, Sometimes marijuana use can be incredibly dangerous. Sometimes alcohol use can be – so we can't make generalizations for everybody. But the hard and fast black and, black and white rules are just killing people right and left. I've heard from so many parents who tell me that their kids went into abstinent-based programs. They, you know, they relapsed and they were kicked out because they had you know, broken the rules. Um, it's not it's, – it's, it's tragic. So many treatments aren't successful and many people find long-term recovery, as you said, only after relapsing again and again. You've researched that heavily there, David, um, and you share so much in your book. Um, are there some really key points that you can share about the ones that you know that are successful and what makes them successful and what those metrics might be? Well, when Nick was... At the very beginning of all this, Nick was in terrible shape, and finally I got him into treatment. And out, out of treatment, we were naive enough to think that you can take a kid you know, who's, who's almost killing himself on methamphetamine and send him to a rehab program for 30 days, and then he's going to be fine. You know, That's not the way it works. So he went to college, and very quickly he did relapse. And I heard from – I was ready to get on a plane and grab him and put him back in treatment. And I heard from the counselor or the head of medical services at that college – who I called and asked for help. And she said, you know, relapse can be part of recovery. And to me, that was, was anathema to recovery. No, no, relapse is a failure of recovery, of, of treatment. Uh, and she said, you know, give him a chance to see if he can use the skills that he learned in that program to help himself and stop himself. Um, and I did. And in Nick's case, it didn't work. I mean, sometimes it can. Um, and there's a real problem here because there is an assumption that relapse is, if not inevitable, likely after people go into treatment. And certainly it's not uncommon. This is a chronic illness, which means once you got it, you got it. Um, but at the same time, it is also, in my opinion, an excuse for treatment programs that just don't do their job. It goes back to what we were talking about. And if sometimes somebody relapses because they never got good treatment, 
And um, that's the part of it that is, you know, a doctor that I know and, and have re used to, you know, has helped me research this whole thing says that a program with that attitude is practicing, uh, it's, it's malpractice. It's tantamount to malpractice. Um, we send a child in to save their life. Um, they send them away and say, you know, they, they do relapse and they're in life-threatening situations again. And the treatment program says, well, that's what happens. That's part of this disease. Um, well, it may not have happened if they got good treatment. So they say that um, when your son or daughter gets substance use disorder, you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, and you can't control it. Uh, mm -hmm. But for many, yourself included, that's difficult to accept. Can you share some words of wisdom on that topic? Well, parents, we're, we're hardwired to save our kids, you know, when they're in trouble. Um, that's what we do. That's our life. I think it's biological. It's a very deep-seated um, imperative almost. And so when we see a child on a course that's going to kill them, we will do everything we can. Uh, that whole Al-Anon thing, you know, you learn the hard way that some of that is completely true. You know, you do, we do think, you asked about guilt earlier. I felt guilty. I do know that I contributed to the, I, I helped. Uh, I didn't cause him to be an addict, but I certainly didn't help because of the stress that I put him through as a child um, through our, the divorce that I described. Uh, and I know now that stress is a risk factor for addiction. So, you know, I do feel guilty about that. Um, and so I didn't cause it, but I contributed. And I, you know, if I knew what I know now, then when, you know, he was 20, when I was 23 years old and was divorcing, I would have done it differently. Um, but I didn't cause it, you know, it's so many factors. Uh, so I got that. Um, I learned the hard way that you can't control it. You know, again, I did the best I could and I got him into program after program after program and he would relapse over and over and over again. Um, so I couldn't control it, but the part of it that I actually feel a little less comfortable with is that the way that that is often interpreted is that you can't control it. So you have to stand back and just let it take its course. Let somebody hit bottom, you know, if they, that's what it'll take for them to get well. Um, and I don't believe that at all anymore. I believe that, um, yeah, you can't control it, but you can do everything you can to, to influence it, to help save one's life, to try to get them into treatment. And you can do it over and over again, just like you do if somebody had cancer and the, if your child had cancer and it came back, you would go to the doctor again, you'd go to the hospital again, you don't give up. Um, so yeah, you can't control it, but there's a lot that you can do. Um, and I think that that's a really, really subtle but critical distinction. I'm glad that you mentioned hitting rock bottom. And, you know, uh, out there, it's believed that that's what you have to do. You have to let them hit rock bottom. And you don't agree with that at all. Why is that? It's dangerous. It's too dangerous. Uh, in the old way, in the old paradigm, when we thought addiction was a moral failing, and someone had to recognize the fact that they were dying. It was a spiritual malady. It was like if they are, you know, they're just, in some ways, they're saying they're a bad person, and you have to figure that out if you're ever going to get well. Um, we don't, it's not true. None of that is true. Um, it's not someone's fault if they get addicted. Uh, it's not a moral failing. And it does not take someone to almost die to get well. In fact, once we know this is a disease, we realize that the opposite is true, is that if somebody is sick, you don't want it to get worse. You don't want them to hit bottom. You want to intervene as soon as you can. And of course, it's easier to treat someone before they're on the streets and shooting meth and shooting heroin. If you can catch them when they're just beginning their drug use, it's easier to treat them. It's not easy, but it's easier. Um, 
And the most compelling argument that discredits this idea of hitting bottom uh, comes from letters that I've gotten from so many parents who've said, I was told to stand back. They had to hit bottom if they were ever going to get help. So I closed the door. I didn't pick them up when they begged me to. Uh, I basically said, you know, you've got to deal with this. And when you hit bottom, you know, I, go get treatment. Uh, and then their child died. Um, it is an incredibly dangerous message that they give people and everyone, almost not everyone, but many, many people give that message. David, what do you want people to take away from your work? What do you want them to learn? Addiction is a disease. It is not a moral failing. People who get addicted are not bad people. They're not weak. They're not amoral. Uh, they have a different brain chemistry than people who don't get addicted. And once we understand that they're ill, that it's not a choice, then we know what to do. Um, still, it's not easy. But what do we do when someone's sick? You go to the doctor. So we want to get rid of this system that requires people to just pray that this goes away or that requires people to um, hit bottom like we talked about. Instead, we want to get medical interventions as soon as possible. So that's the first thing. And the second one goes back to your message of, um, of standing back as parents, as, as giving up, as under feeling you know, the futility, which it does feel uh, like it, a lot of times it feels like everything you do won't help. But my message is, you know, don't give up. Don't give up because it can take time. It's a really complicated disease. And sometimes it takes trial and error. And sometimes it takes multiple treatments. But, you know, until someone dies, there's hope. I want to just take a, a second here and just kind of talk a little bit about your visit to Cleveland. You're going to come out for an event later on this month. Speak to that and recovery resources just for a minute. I'm working. I'm a journalist. I'm a working journalist. So I, I have a lot of other projects and deadlines. But one of the things that remains actually the thing that remains the most important is this um, problem of addiction, especially now uh, that, you know, 140 people in America are dying every single day. Uh, it's the number one overdose is the number one killer of people under 50. Um, so I want to go out and meet people and talk to them and share our stories uh, and honor the people. I talked a lot about people who don't get it, who are treating this disease as if it's a moral failing and blaming people and kicking them out of treatment and this and that. Um, I want to honor the people who are doing the opposite, who are doing good work and saving lives every day. And so when I heard from the people from Recovery Resources, I was thrilled to, um, to come to Cleveland and I'm looking forward to it, looking forward to meeting uh, people there, uh, the people that run the organization, your community, and I'll get to meet you. Outstanding. So what final thoughts would you have for our listeners? I guess what I would say is that um, we're not alone. Everybody thinks they are. Uh, I once was at a, uh, at a college uh, with a bunch of parents and teachers and students, and the conversation came to this idea that you know people who were suffering addiction, some of them college students felt that they were the only ones. Uh, we ended up having people stand up. You know, have you been touched? Are, are you yourself having problems with drugs? Very bravely, a bunch of people stood up. To someone you love, having trouble with drugs, have they become addicted? Do you have an alcoholic parent or grandparent? Um, more people stood up. Um, by the end of it, there were very few people still sitting down. And so I think we need to understand that this is ubiquitous, that the first step is being open, supporting one another, and then we're not alone. And once we're not alone, you know, we can, we can get help. We can get help. And that's my, that's, that's the ultimate message. 
Well, once again, thank you, David. We've been visiting today with David Sheff, the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Clean, Overcoming Addiction and Ending America's Greatest Tragedy, and the the, uh, memoir, Beautiful Boy, A Father's Journey Through His Son's Addiction. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.